0: Welcome to This Must Be The Place. This is a show that strives to reveal the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. Whether these places are cities, fictional locations, street corners, public squares, or those barely noticed nooks and crannies, we will bring you weekly stories, features, and interviews, letting you feel the texture of these places. Since this is our first episode, let's start with a brief statement of what we intend to do with this podcast. This is not a travel show. We are not looking to discover places beyond the so-called beaten path and provide travelers with tips on where to find a taste of authenticity. That might happen as a side effect, however. We are as interested in the places we walk by every day as we are in places thousands of miles away. As we hustle and bustle on our way to work or do our errands, we might feel that occasional tug. It asks us to, to slow down, to take in our surroundings, to be curious about them. But then that thought flutters away as we quicken our pace in order to catch that bus. We'll definitely chat about architecture, about history, about those cultural and social quirks, about nostalgic memories of places long gone or far away. You will be able to download this podcast via the usual suspects such as iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, which is my personal favorite podcast player. Uh, You should check it out at overcast.fm. We also have a website that will not only house these podcasts, it will also showcase our writing, photography, and video content. On the site, you will find content ranging from in-depth coverage of a certain topic to small short video vignettes capturing the essence of a certain place. My name is Eric Parkinson. I was born in New York City. I grew up in Mexico City and have ping-ponged my way across the United States over the years. This podcast, however, originates from stunning Seattle, Washington. So, let's kick this episode off. Not with a discussion of a particular place, but with a discussion of a particular way of being in the world. Many years ago, I bumped into the writings of Walter Benjamin. He's a German philosopher who lived and died in the 20th century. He wrote about many, many things, mostly about literature, art, politics, and philosophy. In particular, one of his essays called The Flaneur really struck a chord in me. In this essay, he sketched out a type of urban dweller who took to the streets with the aim of unabashedly taking in and collecting the experiences. During Paris of the late 19th century, a gigantic urban redesign program was driven by Baron Haussmann. This resulted in the demolition of many older, tangled medieval neighborhoods. And in their place, a lattice of wide avenues, leafy parks, and bustling squares emerged. During these times, architects and merchants also developed a series of long passageways between those buildings. The passageways were, were covered by expansive glass ceilings. These arcades protected people as they walked through them, making it much easier for them to slow down, visit the numerous restaurants, cafes, tailors, cobblers, and other types of shops. These covered passageways are still in place in contemporary Paris, smack in the middle of town, and if you want to find them, mostly within the second arrondissement. But what struck me most when walking their marble floors, under those steel-framed glass roofs, was the presence of many esoteric, highly specialized shops. There were shops selling antique cameras, shops that repaired old dolls, shops that displayed fragile postal stamps, and so on. In essence, these arcades were early prototypes of the covered malls we are all familiar with nowadays. But more importantly, by protecting walkers from the elements... And by centralizing cafes and shops like these, it was easier to stroll, to take one's time, to allow oneself to roam aimlessly and experience all the people and all the places. Though the original impulse to build these arcades might have been to increase foot traffic and increase economic activity, they also had the side effect of drawing out these flaneurs, these urban explorers. Let me read from Walter Benjamin. Quote, the street becomes a dwelling for the flaneur. He is as much at home among the facades of houses as a citizen is in his four walls. To him, the shiny enameled signs of business are at least as good a wall ornament as an oil painting is to a bourgeois in his salon. The walls are the desk against which he presses his notebooks. Newsstands are his libraries, and the terraces of cafes are are the balconies from which he looks down on his household after his work is done, End quote. I mean, come on, how romantic is that? Wouldn't we want the freedom from our day-to-day to have that life? Well, let's be clear. A quick interpretation of Walter Benjamin's flaneur would be to think of him or her as a dilettante, as an idle stroller, as someone lucky enough to have the means to saunter across cities and places, stopping as desired at a café, sipping and watching. Perhaps some of that criticism is fair, but I think more importantly, a flaneur seeks to catalog what is often overlooked and to develop an empathetic understanding of the people he or she encounters in the urban setting. More than a dilettante, the flaneur is an urban archaeologist, brushing off the dust that covers the surface of our urban experience and revealing what is peculiar and what is true. In her book, Wanderlust, A History of Walking, author Rebecca Solnit sums it up really well, and let me quote from that book as well. Quote, What exactly is a flaneur has never been satisfactorily defined, but among all versions of the flaneur as everything from a primeval slacker to a silent poet, one thing remains constant, the image of an observant and solitary man strolling about Paris. A little later on, she writes that Benjamin associated the flaneur with Leisure, with crowds, with alienation or detachment, with observation, with walking. The flaneur arose, Benjamin argues, at a period early in the 19th century when the city had become so large and complex that it was for the first time strange to its inhabitants." Walter Benjamin spent most of his life in exile. He escaped Germany in 1932, anticipating the horrors of Nazi Germany. He traveled across Europe, lived in Paris, settled in his later years in Catalonia, at the northeastern corner of Spain. His entourage in Paris of the 1930s included composer Kurt Weill, novelist Hermann Hesse, and political philosopher Hannah Arendt, a really rarefied crew right there. Though This transient life clearly influenced his thoughts about the flaneur, and you might expect him to have lived this lifestyle to the fullest. His story was not romantic. In 1939, the French government seized him due to their extradition policy. He was imprisoned in a transit camp at a monastery in the Burgundy region for about three months. In 1940, while he was in Catalonia, he was informed by the Spanish Franco regime that he would be deported back to France. Expecting that this meant he would be handed over to Nazi Germany, he decided to swallow some morphine tablets and kill himself. What would it mean to be a flaneur now, in the early 21st century? A flaneur should be an active interpreter, constantly reading his or her environment. As our urban centers become dense and the architecture more complex, you might think the opportunities to feast on all this would increase. Unfortunately, this has occurred as mass industrialization and standardization in our digital lifestyle has also taken root. More often than not, we spend our time commuting to and from our workplaces inside speeding vehicles, or we're too preoccupied with our small screens, or we're too busy or too tired to take note of the visual richness around us. We rarely have time to pause and admire those small details in the architecture, or or to indulge a daydream caused by some stranger's facial expression. Think about the majority of our workplaces. They tend to be barren environments where more often than not visual complexity has been replaced by monotony, all in the name of economic efficiency. I mean, cubicles are the most obvious manifestation. But I wonder if the same could be said about the very popular open office concepts that have cropped up recently. You know, open office concepts with their fun yet forced play and collaboration spaces. Okay, foosball tables can be engaging. I'll give them that. I live in the neighborhood of South Lake Union in Seattle. This neighborhood has seen tremendous growth in the past seven or eight years. There are construction cranes everywhere. Knowledge workers and the so called creative class, as, as dubbed by Richard Florida, have been flooding into this area. There's a gaggle of uh, biotech and tech companies taking root here, including Amazon.com, who has set up headquarters right here. I remember during construction planning and design discussions, a lot was made in town halls and in pretty urban design documents about the public spaces and the street life that would emerge from all this growth. They presented drawings of chic urbanites floating through leafy urban spaces surrounded by people and street-side cafes. The first few waves of construction have, have completed. They're done. And what we have now in South Lake Union is a suburban corporate campus planted in the middle of the city. Public spaces are now in place, but let me tell you, these are sad concrete spaces wedged between corporate steel and glass buildings. They're sprinkled with a few metal chairs and tables. During the day, you may see them occupied by workers. They're munching on sandwiches or on their favorite food truck goodies. They're walking their dogs and and they pause strategically at locations where dirt and greenery have been placed amidst the concrete to allow the dog to do its business. But these places are barren during the night and during the weekends. All these chairs and tables are locked into place by chains. You might as well see tumbleweed rolling by. Are we dropping the ball when it comes to designing great public spaces and experiences? When I try to think about existing public spaces that are compelling, the ones that entice you to slow your pace and drink it all in, I tend to visualize spaces that were unveiled years and maybe even centuries ago. I think of, for instance, Bryant Park in Manhattan. I think of the Marais neighborhood in Paris. I think of Colonial Coyoacán in Mexico City. But wait a second. But the, the, uh, like they said, they asked me up in, uh, uh, at Harvard, a bunch of kids asked me, Why, what's comedy? So I said, and this, this is part of what I'm trying to say about getting back from they, I I said, comedy is tragedy plus time tragedy plus time see when the night lincoln was shot you couldn't joke about it you couldn't make a joke about that he just couldn't do it now time has gone by and now it's fair game see what i mean it's tragedy plus time okay we're out that's it so fast i shut up 10 rolls on your first question that was alan alda and woody allen's wonderful 1986 film crimes and misdemeanors okay we're not talking about comedy and tragedy right now, but is a similar point to be made here? Does a great space only emerge after enough time passes and people stamp their own imprint on it? Is my cranky dissatisfaction with contemporary urban design just nostalgia running rampant? Is it an automatic but uh, misguided fixation I have with that which is older? It feeds a hunger for something authentic, but I'm blind to the fact that maybe contemporary life still provides a rich tapestry, a rich experience. If only I would open my eyes and see it. Am I just an old fogey yelling at new construction to get off my lawn? Yeah, I'm sure some of it might be that, but but I don't think I'm alone. I've noticed, especially in the last 10 years or so, an explosion in articles, blog posts, and books centered around the theme of slowness. It's probably arbitrary to pinpoint the genesis of this movement, of this of this need for slowness, but I'll pick one. In december nineteen eighty six, Italy's first McDonald's opened in Rome at the Piazza di Spagna, near the famed Spanish steppes. Fearing the Americanization and the flattening of the Italian food culture, a journalist named Carlo Petrini he organized protests and spawned what is now called the slow food movement. That movement rejects the industrialization of food and, and favors regional, sustainable food production and distribution, basically what you hear every somewhat insufferable local restaurant that is hip, you know, tell you about now, oh, it was sourced locally. Though this movement's focus was on food, it has mirrored a, a similar movement happening in the culture, that applies a philosophy of slow, deliberative thinking across all facets of our lives. You've probably heard calls for four-day work weeks, for increased vacation time, for ways to downshift our hectic lives in order to be more connected, the whole culture of so-called mindfulness. There's a, a conscious rejection of the increasing cult of productivity and the glamorization of busy lives. So. That's about it for this week. Thank you for being part of our inaugural episode. As you could probably tell, this is a bit of a manifesto, you know, a statement of intent to set the tone for the future. I'd love to hear and read your thoughts on today's episode. Are you more optimistic than I am about contemporary public spaces? Can you think of wonderful spaces that have been created in the past, say, 20 years? Where are they? What are they? What does a contemporary flaneur look like? Where does one go to observe, to empathize, and to uncover beauty? Let us know by visiting thismustbe theplace.io, where you can either comment on the site or find links to our social presence on Facebook, Twitter, and so on. Also, be sure to check out today's show notes, where I'll make sure to add links that match to any references I made today. So you want a little taste of what's to come in the future? Sure. We have some great stuff planned for you, ranging from discussions of specific places such as the Basque Country in Spain to broader topics tackling how we relate to places in our day-to-day lives, such as an exploration of how and why we approach photographing the places we visit. Next week, however, we will explore how places are depicted in film. We will explore how it is that some films have the power to evoke such a strong sense of place in us, the viewers. We will not only cover how specific films excel at this, but also about how the craft of filmmaking is used to evoke the mood and the texture of those places, whether those places are actual cities or fictional worlds. I will be joined by Sean Axemaker. He is a prolific Seattle-based film essayist who was, among other things, the film critic for the Seattle Post-Intelligencer until about 2009, and a DVD columnist for IMDB, the Internet Movie Database, until about 2007. It's going to be a a great broad-ranging conversation about places in film. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share, like, or leave comments about this podcast, since all this activity helps us get noticed and helps us grow. I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io. You heard right, thismustbetheplace.io, not .com, where our podcasts, videos, and written content will live. And of course, you can always subscribe and receive the latest greatest episode on your favorite app and device. Until the next time, this must be the place.